Uh, Let me open us in prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you so much for time together, considering uh, what it is that you are at work doing in the world. Uh, We pray that you would give us a right understanding of your word, uh, that we would be encouraged by the God that we meet here in Scripture, that your spirit would be at work in us, Father, uh, that we would be built up, and uh, all for our good and your glory and for the kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Uh, so let's just, there's probably the easiest place to start, and some of this I said last week, but I'm going to say it again, uh, and we're going to pause with each one and give you an opportunity to ask questions. Uh, and so uh, every Christian tradition has a, an understanding of the whole of Scripture that is the means by which they read Scripture, a framework uh, that they understand about how God is revealing Himself, and they use that framework in order to go into a specific passage and read it and understand it. Uh, We would most often refer to this uh, either as an interpretive system or really, in, in a significant sense, we're talking about systematic theology. Uh, not all manner of reading God's Word is equally good. Uh, there, there are better systems that are known to be, if you will, experienced to be better systems because they account for more of the material. They, they can hold it all together, Scripture, uh, and, and if you say to them, but what about this verse? They can show you how that verse is supporting the whole, how it's a piece that fits into the whole. It's not contradictory. Uh, it's not contradictory to their system, their interpretive system, and it's not contradictory to the rest of Scripture. Uh, I may have even recently used this illustration, but the way I normally explain it is it's like taking a car engine apart down to the very smallest parts to try and figure out how the engine works, and then putting the car back together, that engine back together. Uh, I'm guessing no matter how good a mechanic you are, there's probably going to be a box with some parts left over. They were in the engine when you took it apart, but now that you put it back together, Uh, there's just these couple of parts left over and you're not sure what to do with them. And in some sense, the best interpretive system has the fewest parts left over in the box, right? The fewest enigmas in God's word that you go, my system just doesn't explain that, it can't account for that, right? Uh, Our system of theology, our interpretive grid or system by which we as Presbyterians as those who, who believe that the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger catechism and the shorter catechisms are faithful expositions of God's Word, would describe our system as, uh, as a covenantal system. We, we hold to what's called covenant theology. And the reason that it has that name is we believe that if there is, in in that structure of God's revelation of Himself throughout history, if there's a backbone that runs through it, that is the core that holds all together and gives it strength, it is that God has made covenant 
with his people. And everything that God has done, is doing, and will do is comprehended. It's understood according to its place in that covenant. Right? So, with that understanding now, we're going to get increasingly complex as we go. It turns out there is not one covenant. There are multiple covenants each of them accomplishing different things, okay? There are two main covenants, uh, three, really. The third one is of a a really different kind. We'll come to that in a second. Uh, The first covenant I want to talk about is called the covenant of works. It can also be called the covenant of life, the covenant of creation, uh, there's at least one other name for this covenant. There's so many names there. They're all the same covenant, just different names attached to it, in large part depending on what the person speaking wants to emphasize about the nature of that covenant. This covenant of works is the covenant that God entered into with Adam in the garden before the fall. A covenant is by nature an agreement between two people. It's not historically unilateral or, or bilateral. It's unilateral. That is, it's not I agree and you agree and we're agreed together, a contract, you're buying a car, and the dealership agrees to hand over one car in, in good condition to you and you agree to hand over a check for a certain amount of money, right? That, that's a, a bilateral contract or covenant. God's covenants are unilateral in as much as He makes the covenants. And he is ultimately going to uphold the covenant, right? So the covenant of works, God says to Adam, obey me perfectly and live forever. Disobey me, and on that day you will surely die. Now, some of what I just said has to be implied. You've got to read and and by implication you can see this. If the threat was, disobey me and die, the alternative must be, obey me and live. And we're going to get those those details filled in as Scripture goes on, but they're right there. The word covenant is not in Genesis 1 through 3, but in Hosea, God, speaking to the people of Israel, says to them, like Adam, you transgressed the covenant. Right? Right? So clearly Adam was in covenant with God, and transgression was Adam's problem, right? He broke that covenant. So that's the covenant of works. The covenant of works, what Adam did, the covenants have representatives. Adam is the representative of the human race in the covenant of works. When Adam sinned and broke the covenant, he did so for himself and for his posterity, all of his offspring. So the guilt that fell on Adam and the judgment that fell on Adam fell on us as well. He was our representative in that covenant. The covenant of works is still in effect. When Adam broke it, it didn't go away. 
The covenant of work, works is still in effect, and it still condemns, and every single person who's ever been conceived was conceived under the covenant of works. What was their relationship to God? They stood condemned in the covenant of works. And it will be thus for eternity. The effects of the covenant of works being broken will echo in hell forever. And, and God could have just full stop right there. And every last member of the human race could have spent an eternity in hell and God would have been just. Now there's one more aspect of the covenant of works. It's the most important aspect of the covenant of works to us, but it carries us into the next covenant. And so I want to pause right there. What are your questions about the covenant of works? Uh, Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, and 1 Corinthians 15, somewhere, that's a really long chapter, and I can't remember the exact verse. In my recollection, it's in the 30s, but, uh, but in 1 Corinthians 15, these are two places that you see Paul making reference to the fact that Adam, what he did, he did as our representative. We're, we're actually not intuiting that from the text. Paul says it outright. In Adam, all died. Okay, no questions about the covenant of works or creation or life, whatever label you prefer. Some people aren't com comfortable with the label covenant of works because they've been raised in a, a broadly evangelical context where you're told over and over and over and over and over again, you're, you're not saved by works, you're not saved by works, you're not saved by works. Uh, and they also are troubled that it implies that there's no grace in the covenant. But the answer to both of those objections is that we're talking about before the fall. Before the fall, there was no grace as we know it as a saving grace. There's no need for it. Adam and Eve have never sinned. They are not under God's judgment. Now, is God gracious? Of course He's gracious. He, because that's His character. He's eternally gracious. Uh, do we see Him doing things that could be described as gracious? Of course, He created the world and He made it good. And he put us in it and made us the king of it. Yeah, those are all wonderful things that we might generally speak of as being gracious acts of God. He held out eternal life to us if we would only obey. But, but typically in a Christian theological context, grace is God's response to sin. And there has been no sin in the garden as of yet. So covenant of works is an accurate description. What is required of Adam? Good works, perfect obedience. Now that's important, and you're going to see why when we come to the next covenant, which I'm going to move into if there are no other questions. Yes? So it seems to me that that's 
you know, affirming the idea that the covenant of works is still operative. But it also seems to offer the possibility that a fallen human, if he could somehow and possibly keep the law, could still live, you know, by satisfying the covenant of works. Now, obviously, we can't do that because of the sin nature, but it would seem to me that whereas the, you know, the, the confession and the Romans were, were told clearly that it isn't even the sin that condemns you, it's the sin nature before you even ever sin. Mm -hmm. But if it's the sin nature that condemns you before you even ever sin, how can God say, if you keep my law, you will live? Mm -hmm. In Leviticus and then again in, in Galatians. Uh, the question is, how can it say in the law, if you keep this, you will live? If the sin nature condemns us before we're ever born, even if it was possible for you to not sin, uh, you would still be condemned. So how can the law say keep this and live? Uh, and the way I would answer that question is that the, the Mosaic law, which is what you're referring to, is by nature an, an illustration, a teacher. Uh, Paul says that the law is a teacher to those underage. Uh, and what it's anticipating in the keep this and live is Christ. So that for the rest of us, it can be only a hypothetical, but for Christ, it's, it's a reality. Uh, it turns out, uh, let me say it this way, that the law in that moment is, is a little shorthand. Keep this and live. If you could, but you can't. But if anybody ever came along who could and they did, they would live. That's, it's anticipating Christ in that. And sure enough, Christ comes along. He doesn't have the sin nature. He's not only therefore able to keep the law, but he is not under condemnation. That makes him qualified to do what he does for himself and for us. Because he's, when it says do this and live, Christ does that and lives and does it for us and we live too, therefore. Right? Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So... I want to really make sure everybody's on board and we're moving along. You don't have to agree with me, but I want to make sure you understand me. All good? Ready to go on? The, the problem now should be clear. All of us stand condemned. All of us prove that we stand condemned because without exception in all of history, except for Christ himself born without a sin nature, all of us have sinned. Sin is absolutely universal. And you sin before you even understand any of these things. Uh, I've told the story for years and years. I don't know if he knows I tell the story, uh, but for the first time that I can recall, he's in the room of Ian, our oldest. Uh, and I had this, uh, this, I had made with just like two by fours and wooden dowels, I had made a CD stand, right? And those of you who were adults in the 90s, you know what I'm talking about, right? You just, if you had a CD collection, you had to find some place to put it. Uh, and those, those CD stands were expensive, so I just went out and made one, right? And it wasn't pretty. Don't, don't get the wrong impression. I was no master craftsman, but it held my CDs. I'm, I, the lowest uh, shelf for the CDs was right down on the ground. And, uh, and it was just too much temptation for Ian. He was not even walking yet. And I can, I can still see us in our little apartment in Tyler, Texas, Leslie and I sitting on the couch watching TV, Ian in the floor playing, rolling over into his crawl position and crawling over to the CDs. 
and he would reach up and he would pull the CDs down. They made a really satisfying clatter, right? And we would get up and say, no, Ian, no, you don't touch. And we would put the CDs back up on the shelf, nice and neat, and pick him up and put him back in the middle of the room and sit down on the couch, not yet walking. He would roll over into a crawl position, crawl over to the CDs, stop, put his hand on the CDs, and look over his shoulder. <laughs> right? He understood. He clearly understood this is not okay. And while he's looking at us, we pull the CDs off the shelf. <laughs> right? This, this is human nature, fallen human nature, a condition every single person every, ever born but Christ has suffered from. Right? So, was I answering a question? I don't remember how I got there, but, uh, okay, so the question now is, to, to frame it as the catechism does, right? Our condition is, is one of sin and misery. We are sinners, and we suffer the consequences of our sin now and in eternity. We are miserable. Does God leave us there? Scripture says He does not. He promises to send a Savior to deliver us from the condemnation of the covenant of works. And that Savior comes and provides the perfect obedience that was required and failed in and removes the judgment against us. The context of that promise, God's promise to do this, His promise to deliver us, is what we call the covenant of grace. God has covenanted with us. He is a party to the covenant, and we are a party to the covenant. And He has promised not only to do this in the covenant, but to do it Himself without our help. So the covenant of grace... <coughs> is Jesus Christ fulfilling the covenant of works and putting away the judgment against us in that covenant. I'm nowhere near done with the covenant of grace, but I'm pausing. Questions so far? So you see how Christ is, is at the center of, He is the covenantal head, He is that representative. The role Adam played in the covenant of works Christ now plays in the covenant of grace, and Paul will go so far as to call him the last Adam. And that's why. That's why Christ is the last Adam. It's not just that Christ is also the representative head of a covenant. It's that he is the representative head of a covenant that's fixing what the first Adam messed up. He's putting it right, making all things new to use the language of the book of Revelation. So, uh, the covenant of grace is God's promise to do this. That covenant of grace, that promise that God has made, unfolds over the course of history. And when we look at history, and we're particularly looking at God's work of salvation in history... His deliverance of His people from that covenant of works, 
we refer to it specifically as redemptive history. And in some sense, all of history is redemptive history. All of it is God working out His plan and purpose, moving us towards an end. But particularly when we look at the works that are the, the particular acts of salvation that God is engaged in in history, uh, that's redemptive history. And the way that God does this in redemptive history is, is multiform. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot of different threads we can follow through Scripture when it comes to the covenant of grace. Some of them are right there. We, we spent time in the sermon this morning talking about them. Some of them begin right there in Genesis 3.15. The idea that there's a division in humanity between those who are in the covenant of grace and those who are in the covenant of works. Uh, the, the idea that a Savior has been sent right? Uh, Genesis 3.15 goes on to say that the offspring of Eve will crush the serpent's head. Or there's, you know, the translation of that, that second half of that verse from the Hebrew uh, has a, uh, an interesting history. Uh, but the, the serpent will bruise the heel and the offspring of Eve will bruise the head. That is, it's a fatal wound. So right there, we're already getting uh, that there's a Messiah, uh, that there's uh, a division and discord between these two parties who will be at war at one another, and Christ will come to resolve that war. Uh, so we've, we've got these threads. Uh, that messianic thread is the central thread in the covenant of grace. One of the main things about a covenant is it has to have uh, someone who administers it. There's got to be somebody who does the thing. And in the covenant of grace, that somebody is Jesus Christ. And so from Genesis 3.15 until we get to the gospel accounts, the people of God are looking for that promised Messiah and living in the anticipation of the coming of that Messiah. And the Old Testament is telling them over and over again that Messiah is coming, and this is who He will be, and this is what He will do. And, and sometimes it's, it's, it's not as clear to them when they receive it as it is to us today on this side of the cross looking back. So many failed to anticipate that the Messiah would come twice that all of the beautiful things the Messiah said, uh, that Scripture says the Messiah will do in the Old Testament, some of those things He does in His first coming, some of them He's doing now, some He will do in His second coming. It's, it's not always crystal clear in the Old Testament that that Messiah will also be God. We take that for granted. It was a shock to the people of Israel in the first century during Christ's earthly ministry. Few, if any, were anticipating a Messiah who was also God. So Christ, in His person and His work, stand at the center of that covenant of grace. And all of Scripture is, is anticipating this Messiah. And even if you think about this, if the Old Testament is constantly saying, don't worry, salvation is coming... When salvation comes, this is what it's going to look like. 
This is who he's going to be. This is what he's going to do. If that's what, what the Old Testament is ramping up towards, and then in, in the crescendo of redemptive history, we come to the, the person and work of Christ in his first coming. What is the New Testament? The New Testament is, is entirely looking back to, to who that Christ was and what he did, interpreting what he did, and now also, again, looking forward with anticipation to His second coming. It's all about Christ and His person and His work. The covenant of grace is about Jesus Christ and His person and His work doing what He has promised to do as the head of that covenant. And that is to put away the curse of the old covenant, of, of the, the covenant of works and to provide the righteousness that that covenant requires in order to gain life. Okay, I'm going to pause. Um, let me give you a couple of references first for those of you taking notes. Uh, Genesis 3.15, uh, Genesis 12, 1-3, all of Genesis 15, uh, the first half of Genesis 17, uh, the Genesis 12, 15, and 17 are the Abrahamic covenant, and that, that's going to lead us into the next part of what I'm talking about today because that covenant of grace unfolds in history in a handful of particular covenants. So we've got more covenants to talk about. Questions? Mike? Um, we say in the church all the time, at least growing up, that we're no longer saved by works, but we're saved by grace. Uh, but in a very real sense, we are saved by works. It's just not our works. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that the covenant of works required works of Adam and he failed, and inasmuch as Christ does what Adam failed to do, Christ is meriting salvation by his works for us. He, he doesn't need salvation. He never sins. He is the Adam made perfect who never sins and therefore is not subject to death. He suffers death for our sake. Jesus is not a man that was ever going to die. He was perfect. He, he did not have a sin nature, and He did not sin Himself. He was not subject to death. Jesus, Jesus isn't a man who was going to die, and He just picked how and when. Jesus was never going to die except for us. Absolutely every last ounce of His death was for our sake. He was not otherwise subject to death. But as Paul says, became sin for us. Right? Okay. Any, any questions about the covenant of grace? I, I think I saw another hand when I called on Mike. Was there somebody over in this area? Okay. That covenant of grace, then, uh, we, we might say is anticipated in Genesis 3.15. God says, this is what I'm going to do. We call that, the, the official term for that passage is the proto-evangelium, uh, the, the first expression of the good news. That, that covenant of grace begins to take shape in history with the person of Abraham. 
God comes and makes a covenant with Abraham. And the covenant God makes with Abraham is the covenant of grace. It is an expression of the covenant of grace, breaking into time and space, right? And so it's not, it's not other than. It's not there's a covenant of grace and there's a covenant, an Abrahamic covenant, and they've got some similarities. The Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace being worked out in history by God. As such, the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect and does not end. The promises made to Abraham in that covenant were for Abraham and all his offspring, and in him all the families of the earth will be blessed, and Paul says that's the gospel. He quotes that verse and says the gospel was preached to Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant is the gospel. And then as we we did this morning in the sermon, uh, you, you see as you begin to read through Scripture, it's, it's evident in Genesis, Paul makes it explicit in Romans and elsewhere, Romans 4 and 9, though, being the, the clearest passages, that when the promise is made to Abraham and his offspring, offspring refers to all who will believe. It is not genetic. And as if to make that crystal clear from day one, Abraham then has a child, and God says, yeah, not him. And you say, yeah, 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 but that was because it was supposed to be with Sarah. Ishmael was from Hagar. He has Isaac, who's from Sarah, so it's Isaac. God will continue to speak of Isaac in Genesis as though he's the only son Abraham has. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Genesis 22. Right? Even, even in today's passage, if you go back, it, God, speaking of Isaac, speaks as though he's the only son. And then Isaac, through Rebekah, the same mother, Paul reminds us now, and there's a reason he reminds us that the boys were born of the same mother. Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved. God is, is showing us immediately in Genesis in the very context of the Abrahamic covenant, even while Abraham lives, this is not genetic, it's spiritual. So, that Abrahamic covenant, it goes on, and if you are trusting in Christ, you are a member of the Abrahamic covenant. How else might we see that in the New Testament? Well, Paul's constant haranguing giving comfort to Gentiles, don't worry, you're children of Abraham. And you've heard me say it before if you've been with us for very long, who cares? I mean, honestly, who cares that you're a child of Abraham? I mean, what does it matter? I'm not ethnically Jewish. As far as I know, I don't have any Jewish DNA uh, my people are all from way far up north, right? Why would it matter to me that I am a child of Abraham? There is only one reason. Because the promises were given to him alone with his offspring. No one else. 
So the only hope of salvation in all of the world, throughout all of history, in all of the universe on the day that Christ comes again is you are found to be a child of Abraham. That's your only hope. So the, the covenant with Abraham is still in effect and will continue in effect. And so I've given you the passages for that Abrahamic covenant, 12, 15, and 17. Questions on the Abrahamic covenant? Yes, Travis. Just to make sure I understand you. So you're saying, because I've always read, uh, you know, take your only son, you know, whom you love. So it's not that, see, I've always sort of read it as that he loved Isaac and didn't love Ishmael. So, but you're saying that it's more of that, um, that line, the, the Abrahamic line, that it's a spiritual love way that God loved Jacob and Esau he hated. He's sort of saying that, that parallel, is that how it's supposed to be read? Yeah. Um, it, it must be read covenantally because he's not the only son. He's not even the only son Abraham loves. Go back and read how Abraham relates to Ishmael. He loves him. At no point do you get any impression that Abraham does not love Ishmael. God says, I promise you're going to have a son. He says, take Ishmael. Give it all to Ishmael. And God says, no, not Ishmael. Right? And, and he's... Abraham, every indication. And, and on top of that, Ishmael loves Abraham. In this morning's passage, it's Jacob and Ishmael carrying his body into the cave. He loves his father. And I've got to think must have been loved by him. Right? So in what sense is he the only son whom you love? It's because he's the only covenant son. So, other questions? Okay, we're going to go to the Davidic covenant next. And you may be wondering, if you, you know your Bible very well, uh, he skipped Noah and he skipped Moses. Uh, yes, I did, uh, very intentionally. Uh, well, we are coming back to them. They are biblical covenants. We're going to come back and talk about those covenants. But right now, we're going to move on. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel 7, we, do, we have another covenant, but it's not a new covenant as if all previous covenants are now gone. I mean, that's crystal clear. Not even the Mosaic covenant goes away at this point. David is under the covenant made with Moses, and that covenant continues all the way up until Christ's death and resurrection. The Mosaic covenant continues. The Abrahamic covenant continues. The Abrahamic covenant is not, it doesn't go away because of the covenant that you read about in 2 Samuel 7. The Abrahamic covenant continues in effect, but God adds to it. That people who belong to the Abrahamic covenant they will have a king. Uh, and it's not David when this becomes evident. So hold your finger in 2 Samuel 7 and go to Genesis, right at the end of Genesis, chapter 49. In Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his sons. Remember, Jacob is the one who had the 12. 
And look at the blessing he pronounces over Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. I'm not letting Nathan preach this when we get there. This one's mine. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Jesus Christ is anticipated in the promise made to Judah, not only anticipated as a Messiah, but as a king. The scepter shall not depart from him. With that ringing in our ears, we come to 2 Samuel 7. David has established peace, but at a great cost. Uh, he's been a violent man. And having built his own house, he now realizes that God is still living in a tent. And by every indication, the tabernacle in David's time is the one Moses and the people made in the Exodus. Now, I mean, it was, a, it was an impressive structure when it was built. But this is, this is something like 400 years later. It's got to be wearing out. It's a tent which by definition is intended for wandering and they are no longer a wandering people. And David says, I will make a house for God. And through the prophet, God says to David, have I ever asked you for a house? Do I live in houses that you make? Listen, you're not going to make me a house. I'm going to make you a house, by which God is referring to a dynasty. And in that promise, look at what he promises. We're going to pick up in chapter 7, uh, verse 8. I'm going to read quickly and finish with this. We've got at least three more covenants to do after today, so we'll pick up next week. Now, therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Notice he said prince, because God is the king. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. By the way, at this point, if you're David... Unless you understand what God is talking about, you, you're probably wondering, wait, what? I thought we were planted. I thought this was it. We're in the promised land. We're more powerful and prosperous than we've ever been before in history. We're not planted? This isn't it? He says, no, nope. I'm going to plant you in your own place. You'll be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Christ does not himself commit the iniquity, but he takes our sin upon himself as his own. There's no injustice in the cross. There is no injustice in the cross. Christ takes our sin as his own and then suffers the due penalty for that sin. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Twice now he's been told this. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is what we call the Davidic covenant. God enters into a covenant with David and promises one of your offspring will sit on the throne and his throne and his kingdom shall never end. Again, Jesus Christ. At the center of the Abrahamic covenant and the final and ultimate fulfillment of that covenant is Jesus Christ in his person and work. The Davidic covenant is the same. But in the Davidic covenant, we learn not only that it will be a people and a land, the new heavens and the new earth, but that it, there will be a king the Messiah will be king. We're learning that he's coming from the tribe of Judah. He's coming from the line of David. So the covenant in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, is about Christ in his office of king. But it, it's a further revelation of the covenant of grace. It's not other than. It's not on top of. That covenant of grace, God is revealing progressively in history. And the Abrahamic covenant is where he begins to give it its first full expression. And then the Davidic covenant tells us more about the covenant of grace. Next week, we're going to pick up with the new covenant, which is the final covenantal expression of the covenant of grace, which Christ himself cuts. He's the head of that new covenant. He tells us, right, we say it at the table every Sunday, this is the new covenant in my blood. So we're going to look at the New Covenant next week, and then we're going to backtrack to the Noahic and the Mosaic Covenants, okay? Um, I'm, I'm over time, or I would ask for questions. I apologize. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you again for your promises. We thank you for your salvation that you have given us, and, and how you not only tell us about this in your word, but how beautifully you express it. And uh, how our hearts are warmed to be reminded of the truth of who you are and what you've done. That you've not left us in the estate of sin and misery, but have sent a Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his faithfulness to accomplish all that you, Father, Son, and Spirit have purposed. We thank you to be your people. And we thank you for the encouragement that is ours in it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.